0: Welcome to the Bearded Tits Podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. When you think of Wales, three things come to mind. Rugby, rolling green hills and Yolo Williams in worryingly short shorts. For those that don't know who Yolo is, he is currently one of the main presenters for the hit BBC nature show Springwatch and has also appeared in many other programmes including Rugged Wales, Great Welsh Parks and Welsh Language programmes for S4C. Yolo also isn't shy to stand up for nature. From raptor persecution to egg collectors, he's a vocal activist for the natural world. If you can, there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com And you can help out the podcast by donating £3 to help keep it going. And if you could also leave a review for the podcast, that really helps us out. Today, me and Yolo talk about what wildlife encapsulates whales, how we started out with the Watchers, and how surprisingly, egg collecting still goes on even to this day. Here's our chat. Well, Yolo, nope, (laughs) try and spit your name out then. Well, Yolo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks. How are you doing? How is it going with all this all this madness in the world at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I, I must admit, I found this latest lockdown much harder than uh, the ones before. Maybe because you know it, it's been much of it's been over the winter and what have you. But I think it's because it's the third lockdown, and and I must admit, you know, we've been very careful out here. We're in a lucky to live in a rural area, so I've got my daily walks. But it's got to the point now where I know. Every new flower emerging by name, uh, as in not lesser celandine or primrose, but by Bob or Anthony or Martha. You know, so uh, that's it's, how often I'm out walking.
0: It's when they start talking back to you. You need to worry, yellow.
1: <laughs> I tell you what, Jack. It's not far off now. It's not far off now. I, I, but I'm. I am. I. I genuinely have had a gutful now. And you know, obviously, there's. Uh, other people really seriously affected by this um i i had it in march last year oddly enough and it was to me um it affected me a little bit like mild flu for about 10 days so and 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 i think if you're if you're pretty fit if you look after yourself then that you, you know you're sort of 99 percent likely that you it'll hit you just as a as a mild illness but of course the danger is if you've got underlying problems then it you know it can be fatal which is you know which which has affected an awful lot of people but yeah 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 but keeping happy keeping cheerful keeping my head up and enjoying nature and
0: wildlife and i'm glad you mentioned your kind of local area so what's your local patch like i know you probably don't want to broadcast exactly where you live but you'll have you know women throwing their knickers at your front door but what uh what's it like your local area
1: well, if they are going to throw knickers at me, I live in uh, Fort <laughs> Pantador, Newtown Palace, and the postcode is... No, it, it, it's all right, Jackie. It's good. It, I mean, I, I'm I'm lucky because I live on the edge of a fairly small village in mid-Wales, and within, is it five miles we're meant to walk, whatever it is? Yeah. I've got yeah. the canal, you know, so I go for a run. I go for walks along the canal. We've got the Sand River. So in December, November, December, I was able to watch salmon making their way over newtown weir which is always a big attraction for me in winter and then i've got woodland i've got fields farmland here i know the local farmers very well and they're good at allowing me to walk along some of the fields so i'm I'm lucky i'm really lucky and, and actually the best thing i've seen over the last 12 months has been some of the country lanes we've got here walking along those you know especially in spring when the first flowers the lesser celandines, the wood anemones come through and you get your first bumblebees the queens are out and then later on the bee flies and all all the other insects and it's that succession that i really enjoyed watching last year
0: i think one of the things with particularly with this lockdown is you you do notice everything changing because I guess normally we'd be living our lives and we'd be traveling a lot, but like just so in my garden, for example, like I'm looking at my pond every day waiting for frog spawn and it's, I'm getting like a junkie. I'm 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 shaking, waiting for it because like I really want to see some frogs and you just notice it at a very natural pace. Whereas normally, because I'd be busy, I probably wouldn't check for a few days and then, and then I'd find it. So I think we are kind of noticing things a lot more during this lockdown. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and last spring, I think, was the first time since I was probably about 17, maybe even younger than that, that I actually had time on my local patch to go out and do what I used to do when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I've always, always loved bird nesting. I never, ever collected eggs, no interest. But I love when you pick your wits against the birds, you know, and you, <laughs> uh, you find birds' nests. I mean, blackbirds are song thrushes. I'm lucky to still have those here, chaffinches, goldfinches, uh, a lot of Dunnocks here, long-tailed tits. A lot of those really good publishers. Those found a few bullfinch nests, but but always the most difficult one is the the robin. And uh, there's one, there was one singing away down the road here, and I thought, All right, okay, I'll I'll get you in spring. And I went down there <laughs> and I saw it up on the telegraph wire with a beak full of leaves. And you know the it's sort of the base of the nest is usually a pile of dried leaves. Then it adds moss onto this. And I thought, all oh, right, right, OK. But of course, the robin saw me immediately. It opened its beak, dropped all the leaves and began to sing as if he was saying, oh, no, I'm I'm not building a nest. I'm just having a sing song, you know. And it took me three or four more attempts to sneak down, hide in a hedge, stick my head out <laughs> before I was able to watch exactly where it went so they're sly little so-and-so's. And they're very good at hiding their nest as well. But. Yeah, that, that that was a joy. That was an absolute joy.
0: Give them a bit more credit for uh, intelligence than we think, I suppose, when they're when they're doing stuff like that. We were off we were gonna do this podcast in Scotland originally, weren't we? We were gonna have a, a whiskey in the Grand Arms, which is you know somewhere we've both been quite a few times. And it made me think a little bit about the UK as a whole as a wildlife destination because Scotland tends to be up there as like that's the place to go to see wildlife, and England's got little patches. But I don't know how many people from Europe would travel specifically to England. But it made me think about Wales as well, because there are lots of animals in Wales that are also in Scotland. You know, we think about pine martins. You've got them in Wales and red squirrels and black grouse. But do you think Wales is maybe overshadowed a little bit by uh, by some of the wildlife in Scotland, or is it just a case it's a hidden a hidden gem?
1: I'm not quite sure how much of a hidden gem it is, really. I always okay. think, I, I I love Scotland, I really do, but I always think it's like Wales, only stretched out and pushed up a lot more. Okay. Um, and you've got a really nice sort of wild areas up there where you could lose yourself for a long weekend, even a week in one or two areas as well, right over on the west coast there. Wales has got these fairly wildish areas, nothing like they've got up there, And of course, what I love about Wales is that in two hours, I can leave the top of a mountain with its ravens and its peregrine falcons and its ringozles and its arctic alpine plants and its golden ringed dragonflies in the streams. As I walk down, then through farmland, through coniferous forest with its goshawks, with its red squirrels in one or two areas still, then I can come into deciduous woodland with its plethora of lichens and mosses with pipe fly catchers and red starts then i can go through lowland farmland where we've still got the odd curlew, not many i know the hedgerows down along the riverside with its kingfishes and gooseanders and things like you know salmon sea trout. we've still got some even though it's not nowhere near what it was 40 odd years ago to an estuary to a sand dune system and out to the sea and you can do all that in wales in two hours and that's Pretty unique worldwide, I think. So when you've got all those habitats close together, it means that in a day you can see an awful lot of wildlife. You know, whereas in places like Scotland, usually you've got to travel a long way to do all of that. And it'll probably take a long weekend for you. So I, I think it's about marketing whales properly. I think we can't compete. We haven't got, unfortunately, white-tailed eagles and golden eagles and you know things like wildcats, Scottish wildcat, and what have you. But we've got some incredible wildlife. But you've got no way to look for it.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I never really looked at it like that in terms of it all being condensed down. Because the, the nice thing with Wales is, as well, for a lot of people, it's quite accessible. Like whether, whether you're in whether you live in Wales to another part of Wales or on the border in England. I mean, I'm in Nottinghamshire, and it's I think to North Wales, it's just over two hours, maybe, which isn't yeah. which isn't bad. Whereas if I want to get to the the Cairngorms, it's it's a right fucking slog. It's like seven hours or something. Jesus. So. You know, and and North Wales, I mean, I'm guilty that I've not done a lot in Wales, but I I did a little bit for um, natural resource Wales, which I know you've got (laughs) mixed opinions on, is probably the polite way to put it, but uh, I did a little bit of work with them on salmon on the D, and it was beautiful, absolutely loved it, it was phenomenal, and I thought, this is a lot closer than Scotland, I should... uh get on these Welsh salmon a little bit more. Yeah, yeah.
1: well, if if you're over again, Jack, let me know, because I I dive, I've I've dived for many years now, and one of the things I've been meaning to get into for a long time is actually diving, snorkelling, whatever it is, in Welsh rivers, looking at fish. I've got a couple of mates who do it, both of them big fishermen, one's a really good artist as well, and they go and they'll film uh, suing sea trout, you know, salmon as they come up the river. Uh, so and, and and it's fascinating. I've always maintained. I'd love to have a go at that and do a lot more of of uh, that in, in future. You know, but it, it it's it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because I I come from Mid Wales, and there are one or two areas in Mid Wales here that I absolutely love. It's my go to place to see stuff like hen harriers, Merlin, black grouse, short-eared owls. But I'm not willing to advertise where it is, because I, because I want to keep it with nobody, hardly anybody there. But then the local people they want people to come to maintain the cafes and the hotels and you know the the local buses and everything else. So it, it's um, it's a balancing act, and it's it's a difficult one marrying those two things together.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's like. I guess with some of the nature spots where there's lots of people, I guess more eyes is good to keep an eye on anything going dodgy, but then you risk disturbance. So yeah, it's um there's pros and cons to all of it, I guess, with with that, isn't there? Is that David Miller by any chance that your artist friend? Yeah, yeah, he's one. Yeah. yeah, he's a good,
1: very, very good artist, David. Very, oh, yeah. very good uh, artist. And I'm, as a kid's Uh, I grew up in Llanodden, Lake Vernway. People know it as the the River Vernway. Salmon couldn't get up there because there's a big old dam across the river by Dolanog, about eight miles downriver. But we had brown trout. uh, We had had eels. you know. So I used to do a lot of fishing as a kid, a lot of fishing. I haven't done it for 14 or not quite 35 years. And that's one of the things I'd love to get back into, actually, because it's really very relaxing when you're fishing a river and you're watching the dippers and the kingfishers. It used to be waterfalls going by, you know. So I, I and I know a lot of people are anti-fishing. I'm not at all. I think fishermen do an awful lot of good to a lot of our rivers. You know, they they are the campaigners campaigning for cleaner cleaner waters because a lot of our waters are polluted now because of agricultural runoff mainly. And and they they are campaigning really really hard. Um, unfortunately, not getting anywhere partly because of natural resources whales which as you said there's some good people working for it but at, at the highest level I've got no respect for them whatsoever.
0: Yeah I um, I don't I mean you know obviously I've got my love of fish so I, I do a little bit of fishing every now and again but it is, it's nice to leave the camera at home and I treat that as my sort of relaxing kind of getaway which is I guess it's a similar vein you're still outdoors but I don't treat that as a job so I go every now and again which is uh which is always always nice. But yeah, I'd definitely take you up on that. I'd love to go snorkelling or diving in a... I've done it a couple of times with David. We did puffins off skoma and we've done... Um, I can't remember what river it was, but we did go looking for, for suin in a, in a in a river. in Monmouthshire, I think it was, but I didn't see it. David saw some, I didn't see any. But yeah, we'll have to do that. That'd be good. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I wondered, is there a species for you that encapsulates whales? I mean, obviously, if you, if you say Scotland, people would probably lean towards an eagle or a golden eagle. England... God knows what you'd sum England up with. I mean, I don't know. Depends which part of the country it is. But but is there a, is there a species that you'd say encapsulates Wales?
1: Yeah, I I think it would have to be the red kite, wouldn't it? Um, uh, yeah, I, of course. I, yeah. I know now the red kite is found over much of the UK as it was historically, of course. Um, but for a long time, from the eighteen nineties right through to nineteen eighty nine, it was found only in Wales, and it was it was down to just literally a handful of breeding pairs. And Thanks to long-term protection, thanks to a lot of landowners as well, they they played a key role. Uh, numbers increased slowly, then 1989 they took measures to reintroduce birds from Sweden into Scotland, from Spain into England, and then things began to take off. Really began to take off, especially in places like Oxfordshire, you know, where you you where you can see you know several dozen, if not over a hundred, in the air at once there now. And oddly enough, once the Welsh birds moved down into the more fertile valleys things really took off here and it's only through research that we found that actually kites don't like whales at all it's <laughs> it's too cold it's too wet there's not much food here in the the Welsh uplands where they retreated because of persecution really um, and it's only when they got to the more fertile areas that our pairs began to rear two and three young which was which was unheard of up in the hills you know you were lucky for reared one young And I remember when I first, because I worked for the RSPB for 15 years, I remember when I first joined in in the early 80s, we spent so much time guarding the few kite nests left, and we'd lose anything up to 25% of our pairs to egg thieves every year. Um, And some of the tales, you you know, at that time, uh, my job, I was out and about a lot, but I was also coordinating a lot of the work. And we, we had people in Mid Wales, we had sort of gangs of, well, almost like local ruffians, you know. If they if they caught an Edgar, I, I, honestly, I just I I wouldn't like to think what they'd do to to him. And it was always a him. I mean, yeah. I know of several incidents where they put um, a knife in the car tyre so that the Edgar couldn't drive away and phone the police. You know, the police arrived uh, and they, of course, mysteriously disappeared. Um, and and it was it was bandit country back then. It, it was exciting. <laughs> And, of course, as an RSPB worker, I couldn't condone that, even though inside I was thinking, bloody well done, boys. That's <laughs> that's what we did. But, honestly, it was um, – it, it was. I say it was great fun. In a way, it was, but it was heartbreaking as well, because, you you know, you, were, you weren't you were sure whether we were able to hold on to this uh, pitifully small population of red kites, about 40 pairs, I think, we would have had then. And when you're losing 10, 12 pairs a year of those to these eggers, I must admit that I sympathise with these lads, because if I would have caught an egg by myself in a wood, uh, I can't promise that that egg wouldn't have been buried somewhere under the <laughs> leaves, you know, so...
0: Yeah, no, you know, I just... it's. A, I mean, I I, I, I was going to come on to it later, but I might as well bring it up now because we've mentioned <laughs> it. But, like, does does egg collecting still go on now? Because it seems such a Victorian, weird thing for people to do. But I don't know if... yeah, to-
1: Yes, it does. Yeah, really? it, it goes on not to the extent that it did. I remember when I was working for the RSBB, I think on their uh, computer they had the names of something like 500 active eggers. Now, most of those were were small time. They'd been done once for, you know, nicking a, a clutch of robin or blackbird eggs or whatever, right. but some of them were real big time. You're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of eggs. I remember a couple of uh, egg collections being confiscated. One had I think it was 11,000 eggs in it and what? another one not even more yeah yeah it's it's an obsession and what people don't understand is th- there's no financial value in it at all they don't steal the eggs to sell them on they steal them for their own gratification and you can't brag about it to your mates hey come and I look at my eggs you know because then someone will get to know about it the police will come round and you get done So what they do, they used to keep them in attics or in garages and what have you. Now, they've usually got a a, a sort of safe place well away from their homes where they'll keep the eggs. And they, I assume from time to time, will go in and, you you know, sort of fondle the eggs and get some kind of sexual (laughs) gratification from it. Honestly, genuinely, it's it's a weird, weird obsession. Nowhere near as many people do it now because there have been several... Changes in the law, that the fine, you know, I, I remember my early days, the fine was pitiful. If you caught, you had a £40 fine slap on the hand saying naughty boy, which was no deterrent. Then he went up to, I think it was you know, a few thousand pounds per egg, whatever it is for a Schedule 1, a very rare bird. And then came the law whereby uh, the police could confiscate anything that was used in that crime. So you could confiscate their car, keep their car, their binoculars, their ropes, their maps, their books. Um, And also then it became custodial. You had the option of a custodial sentence. And that was what did for a lot of them, I think. Once they thought, hang on, now I can be banged up for six months here. That was when I think um, quite a few of them gave up then. Uh, But up until that point, they were were very active. They were out in uh, all weather. They were out from... In, in Wales, the early ones would be out in February taking raven eggs and then eyeing up where the red kites were displaying, thinking, OK, there's going to be a nest. I'll be back in a month and a half. I'll get those. And all the way through, they'd come maybe for merlins, maybe peregrines. They'd come back for the, the last ones, the last visit to Wales. would probably be early to mid-June for things like nesting rosier turns. And then they'd, um, they'd also go up to Scotland, you know, after eagles, of course, early on. Later on, to be after the divers. And it, it's you should see the diaries of some of these. They've, they work out where they're going to go every single weekend, every holiday they had, throughout spring, right into summer. It's, as I say, it, it's an obsession. And, and they came from all kinds of backgrounds as well. A couple, I think, were serving police officers until they were caught and then they were thrown out of the force. Um, one one, I remember one very prominent one was a steel worker one was a solicitor Um, a lot of them were unemployed but but you know all kinds of backgrounds all kinds of backgrounds And, and and if people were to vote for me as a dictator tomorrow one of the first things I would do is I would make it legal to hang egg thieves because between February and June every year I went so many weekends without hardly any sleep you know sleeping rough um, and and all this, I, I I can't stand them. I have no time for them whatsoever, none yeah.
0: whatsoever. Well, when you get to power, although I think you'll get a few uh, a few a few votes <laughs> in there, but that's just yeah. It's imagine them being in with some murderer or something like. What are you in for? Oh, I ate my family. What about you? Oh well, I've collected an egg. You know, it's just yeah. crazy, yeah. absolutely crazy. Did on a, on a slight side note, there was um a series on Welsh wildlife a couple of years ago. I think it was land. Land of the Whale, Land of Wales, or something Wildlife Land of the Wales. I don't know if you had anything to do with that. Yeah. My, Michael Sheen narrated it. Do you remember? Yeah, that? so
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was done by a company called Plimsoll. That's it. They, that's it. They kind of used me as a consultant. In other words, I okay. went in early, uh, gave them a few ideas, a few stories, you know, and and some of it was was excellent. They had some stunning footage, I think, of a dipper nesting behind a waterfall and one or two other things, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, it was nice you know it, it, I, I think it probably helped put Wales and Welsh wildlife on the map a little bit I think
0: it was yeah because I did, I did a little bit for that series on uh, so me and David did puffins for it but they they were asking me for fishy ideas and they said have you got any anything that'd be good for that and, and I said well what are you come up with already they said oh we're thinking about doing salmon and I said you you can't do salmon you've got to do sewing you've got to do sea trout they are the the pinnacle of of Welsh fish they should be on a Welsh banknote really and they and they didn't do it in the end which kind of grated me a little bit because i was like when i think of what if i think of a, a map of the uk salmon for scotland i suppose but for wales it's got to be the sea trout but they didn't didn't do it in the end so that that's the one that i always think of welsh wildlife and i've never seen one but the other one is a, is a gwinead have you heard of that one? Of course, oh, gwinead yeah, yeah yeah
1: in uh sin tegid there bala lake yeah I've, yeah I've 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 seen a dead one. Have you? Um, okay, yeah. They, they it's stank of cucumber, if I remember rightly. It's got a weird oh, cucumbery yeah. smell to it, yeah. And they spawn, they spawn is it in early Feb or something like that? Yeah. Late Jan, early Feb, yeah. I mean, about that, yeah. I, I remember going there and seeing some of the eggs have been washed ashore, you know, onto oh, the edges yeah. there. Okay. Um, yeah, but 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 I've only ever seen one dead. Um, and of course, the other one is although it's not a Welsh one, is um. Torgoch what we call the Arctic char, you know, uh, okay some
0: yeah, yeah, of the yeah.
1: some of the lakes up in North Wales, they're beautiful fish. I, yeah, I've seen those, are. and they are absolutely stunning fish. But of course, there are far more in Scotland and yeah. the the north of England. And actually, one one of the most remarkable things that I've learned in the last couple of years, and it was on Winter Watch a couple of years ago, is about how some of these trout in some of the big lochs up in Scotland almost fill different niches, don't they? they do yeah and over time will probably become different species i would imagine over time
0: well but yeah it's um, uh it was
1: an amazing tale amazing amazing tale
0: well it's funny you mentioned that because like the whole with with in wales a guinead you call them guinead in scotland it's a poem and in england we call them a skelly so it's so funny how each one's got a very kind of uh, country sounding name but some would argue they're different species some would argue they're the same but the same thing's happening with trout now where yeah they you know ferox trout which are these big cannibal but trout yeah. you've got um trout that feed more near the surface so you know over time maybe they uh will develop into to different species who who knows uh you're known i guess mostly as a, as a general naturalist I suppose leaning towards birds a little bit more but i wondered if there was a species uh that stands out for you is there one that particularly captures your interest
1: yeah, there's there's a whole host of them, really. Yeah. Um, I've, I'll answer that in two parts, if I may. First of all, it's the ones that I've seen, the ones that I work on a lot, and it's um, the the one that takes up most of my time, I suppose, is the hen harrier. And it's because it's not because it's become in vogue now to to champion hen <laughs> harriers. I mean, I found my first hen harrier nest in 1973. Uh, And I was, how old was I? I was 10 years old, nearly 11 years old then. And I've been going up onto the same moorland area, vast area of moor ever since, and work on them every year with a good mate of mine called Keith Offord. Keith does 99% of the work. And when I have days off, I'll phone him say, hey, any chance I can come up on the hill with you? And he and I, we've been working those moors for, uh, getting on for 45, 46 years now, 47 years, whatever it is and um it, it's it's my go-to place you know if if uh in spring and summer as you know things get hectic and i think i i'm gonna have a day off week after next and i'm gonna go up on the moors i just spent all day up on the moors either with keith or by myself a couple of butties bit of cake flask of tea and just pin Heavy. down harrier nests monitor them uh not as many merlins up there now whatever else we can find you know there's all kinds of stuff there. Uh, well, botanically, it's there's some interesting stuff up there as well, um, and and so. But it's the hen harrier that uh, drags me up there more than anything else. But there's a whole host of things. Last year, was it last year or the year before? There's a wonderful um, husband and wife farmers, Brian and Saoirse Lewis, in the ellan Valley, a little bit further south in Mid Wales, and I went out with uh, Saoirse with some pheromone. Was to film the Welsh clearwing moth. It's a uh, it's a pretty scarce moth. It's not uniquely Welsh. They found it in cumbria parts of southern Scotland. Um, I think canock Chase as well. In and it, on old uh, birch trees, these really old birch. They they burrow in there. They pupate there, and then they emerge. And you hang up pheromones in early June. Then likelihood is you'll get an adult coming. And that was that was a joy because I hadn't seen them. Since I was about 15. So that was the first time, you know, for me to see them for a very, very long time. And the other thing that I've got, I'm starting to build up now. I'm getting older. I'm 58 now. I'm getting older. And you're very aware, aware of your own mortality. I've never been afraid of death. It doesn't worry me one bit, not one, because I've, I've had a lovely life, really nice life. But I, I've got like a bucket list of things that i really want to do and want to see in the uk mainly and that includes things that i've never seen uh, because i've never made the effort stag beetles never seen them
0: yeah same never i'd love them. to love to yeah,
1: yeah me too you know cracking huge beetle and apparently parts of west london richmond park at yeah. the right time of year they're everywhere they're bloody everywhere you know and i haven't seen one yet searl buntings i've seen them abroad i've never popped down to devon to see them so i'm gonna want to see those. There's um, there's a, a, a reserve near Oxford, like a, a sort of wet meadow reserve that at, at, at the right time of year is full of snakes head fritillaries, wild ones. You know, yeah. I really want to go and see those. I want to go snorkeling, stroke diving to see things like sea Um So th- this, I, I've got this list that I've built up. The other, the big one that I'd love to do is get in the water with orcas.
0: Oh, um, I'd,
1: yeah, yeah i'd love to do that i'd love to do that and i got you wouldn't be nervous no not at no. all because they're no. hyper intelligent hyper intelligent yeah. there's never been a, an attack on people except in captivity yeah you know which which you'd expect if you're going to stick a, 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 an amazing intelligent mammal like that in a small swimming pool well you deserve everything you get because that is incredibly cruel so, uh, yeah, so I'm building up this bucket list and uh, as I get every year older, I'm thinking, oh, bloody hell, come on, y'all, you've all got to get on with this bucket <laughs> list now, man, just in case. Because the amount of cake I eat, it'll probably be a heart attack that gets me in the end of it.
0: <laughs> Just got a, 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 wed- a wedge of lemon drizzle in one hand and a smile on your back. Uh, <laughs> I, I
1: tell you what, I dri- I go, as long as I can tick off some of these bucket list things, I go a happy man then, I go a happy
0: man. <laughs> Oh, don't blame me. I'm partial to uh, any any cake that's going really. Um many <laughs> of you uh or many people will know you from, from the watches. And I wondered uh how did you go from you know an RSPB uh, officer to being a mainstay on on the watches?
1: Uh by by accident. I'm, i I I won't go into detail into how I, I went into tally in the first place. I've I've told this story many a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, it was my time at the RSPB was obviously coming to an end because my they were trying to curtail my field work. You know, they were trying to say, you've got to go into middle management, give up a lot of the fieldwork. And I just wasn't willing to do that at all, really. Um, I was quite happy staying on a, a much lower wage, staying, you know, managing a small team in the field, but getting out into the field a lot myself as well. That now that, that's my passion, really, because um, I'm a naturalist. I'm not a TV presenter at, at all. Um, And then because I had to deal with various TV companies and uh, news over the years, dealing with poisoning incidents, dealing with illegal shooting, the Sea Empress, that was a big one when the oil tanker went down 25 years ago now, 1996 off uh, Pembrokeshire coast. had to deal with the media and deal with the birds there. That Welsh telly, BBC Wales and S4C came and said, listen, we've heard you're leaving. Do you fancy doing some wildlife stuff for us? And my answer was no, because I found telly to be a pain in the ass. You know, they really are, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, can you just do that another four times? Yeah. And you think, yeah, yeah. it another four times? I've walked down the hill once for you for crying out. Like, <laughs> didn't you bloody film it or what? You know, so, um, but then there wasn't much work around. I just got married and, and money for the first time in my life was quite important. Um, and in the end, I phoned them back and said, "Let's give it a go." And that was 22 years ago. And the watches is, is is a different story. I've got I've got a, a sort of up and down relationship with BBC Bristol over the years. Um, I I was asked I, w- I won't name anyone, but I was asked many many years ago. I went down there for a meeting, and a lady said to me, looked at me after I would spoken for about five minutes, and said, um, "Now then, uh, ayulu could you possibly do something about your accent, do you think? You know, bear bear in mind, this was 1999. So that that didn't please me at all. So I got up and said, thanks for the meeting and walked out and thought, bugger that, I'm not (laughs) going to work with that lot. Um, And then there was another incident a few years later on as well, where I was shafted again, really took an idea down there. They didn't want it. So I went to BBC Wales. They wanted it just to find that the BBC Bristol had taken the idea, run with it, and they had a big series and they told us our series has to come up before yours, you know, so so th- that didn't please me at all and I thought right okay that's it, no more. And I just finished filming a series for S4C, for Welsh telly in North America, um, USA and Canada on Native Americans. I've always okay. been fascinated by them. Whenever we were kids and you had a game of cowboys and indians all my mates wanted to be cowboys i wanted to be an indian i wanted to live in the woods with a bow and arrow and whatever you, you know so i've always been fascinated by them so we we went out and i kind of lived with six different tribes uh four in usa two in canada for two weeks and got to know the people um saw how they were suffering their language had been wiped out i was on the verge of being wiped out they were they were eating all the wrong foods or they were diabetic. They were alcoholic. They were drug addicts. It was it was a traumatic series. It was a really difficult one to film. And I just finished with the last of the tribes in Canada. I think it was the Mi'kmaq. And I'd gone out, uh, well, on the piss, basically, with a couple of French Canadians in uh, Toronto, I think we were. And they were they were a hoot, you know. And I got in at about four in the morning. And much the worst for wear. And the phone went at 6 six a.m. And I thought, that oh, the bloody hell is giving me a bell? And so I looked at my phone and it said, Chris Packham. And I said, what the hell does he want? No. So I answered the <laughs> phone, uh, rough as hell, you know. I said, listen, Chris, I've got to apologize. I said, I just over here been filming and much the worse for where. And he said, no, 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 that's fine. And he was asking me, um, I think Bill Oddie had gone, Kate. Humble that no. Kate was still there. Bill Oddie had gone, and Simon King had just left the watches, and they were trying three or four people. There was a lad from Northern Ireland, can't remember who else was. Liz Bonin, I think, was one of them. And then they asked me, was well, he asked me, he wanted me on there. Do you fancy coming on the watches? And so he's the one. It's down to him that I, that I'm on there, really. Um, and and he's a good lad. He's a he's a very He's an interesting character, Chris, because I've known him. I was trying to work this out the other day. I've known him more than 25 years now, but I still don't know him well. No. He's he's very, very private, um, but but it, but incredibly supportive, incredibly supportive. And I'm full of admiration for the way that he manages to, pack everything into his life. You know, the campaigning, he still gets out and about and does a bit of wildlife watching and what have you. A lot of filming, of course, he's a busy man. And he's got the most incredible brain, the most orderly brain of anyone I've ever met. So, it, yeah, I'm I'm on there, thanks to him.
0: Well, I suppose people don't realise as well, because, I mean, I've, I've done the bits and bobs for the watches over the years, but that's obviously your work. And when, when things were back to normal and you were able to mix somewhat, it's obviously... It's your job. It's not fun in games. You're all working, aren't you? And the presenters, presumably. I mean, you do get to see each other a bit, but you're you're at work, aren't you? You got to learn yeah. learn your lines and whatever. It's not like you're all kicking back with a a, a, a bottle of champagne or whatever, pissing yourselves laughing. You've you got to crack on and do it. So I guess there's not that much time to to get into the nitty gritty of everyone's lives. You, you're there. For... No, no, you don't
1: really. Uh, I, I mean, it, it is a joy, and it genuinely is a joy. It's yeah, a, it's a yeah. Fun fantastic team it's about it's roughly probably about 120 people you know okay we're all working separately now because we have to but when we were all together about 120 people and I've never worked in in an environment like that where everybody is rooting for you you're just that sharp end it's just your face they see but behind that here's all these people riggers, lighting sounders uh camera people or uh directors producers researchers all of these people uh doing genuinely a fantastic job and it's it's a lovely feeling but you are right it's hard work it's long hours i mean you'll start i, I like to start at seven seven a.m ish seven to eight where you get you look at the running order for that day you don't have a script as such you just have a running order you know Uh, what you're dealing with you know who comes before you 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 then see who you've got a link into afterwards or it might be somebody's film might be one of your films the baitball film for example which is fantastic Um, and then we'll go into a meeting at about nine and then we'll go over everything make sure it's factually correct make sure that um, uh, people are happy with what's on there and then Susie will say well actually it's too long we need to lose about four minutes here so then we got to go back through it all, you know, and say, oh, well, I can lose a bit there. That can go. That's not essential. That bit there. So there's all of that. Then we as presenters go off and we write those little cue cards that you see, you know, where all I do is put little prompts. I try and get it in my head what I'm doing, uh, who I'm coming from what my first point is, what I need to go into. I've then got a chart, I've got a show, showing the life cycle of a salmon, whatever it is. You know, So I've got little b- bullet points, that's what I have. Then we have what they call a block just after lunch, which is where we run through everything to make sure that if I've got to get from the river to a wood, and I've only got four minutes because there's a four minute film between that, is that feasible? So we run through the block, Then we go away again. We watch all the films that are going to go out that night to make sure that if we are linking into it or out of it, we know what we've watched. And also actually making sure that it's all factually correct as well. Um, And then we'll have a rehearsal, a full rehearsal, where we do it as if it's live. And we run through that. At the end of that, of course, we'll then have a meeting to say, well, actually, you know, Yolo, you rambled on a bit too much about the... um, about the salmon pan and the salmon fry. Can you make that you know, much more succinct thing? And you've got to mention orcas out at sea and this kind of stuff. And then, of course, we'll have our evening meal and then we'll have one last look at our cards. And then we go live and the live finishes at nine. By the time you've demiked and everything else, it's about quarter past, half past. And then you get the running order for the next day. And I like to have a look at that the night before. So you get a bed about 11 o'clock. There's usually, if we're all together, I make sure there's time for a pint in the evening just to have, if it's half an hour's unwind, you know, it's nice to sit down. Invariably, you'll be with Michaela, Gillian maybe, um, just have an unwind, a bit of a chinwag. Michaela's amazing. She goes and watches the whole program again to see what she thinks was good and what didn't work. And she looked at she looks at her own performance and thinks, actually, do you know what, I rambled on a bit too much there, or I could have padded that out a little bit and what have you. She's fantastic. I don't. Once it's gone out live, <laughs> that's it. I hate watching myself, so I think, that's it it's done i can't change anything there i mean obviously you know if i've I've made a a real hash you think oh my god right okay i need to think about that or what have you but um so they are long days and exactly what you say, you don't really have time to catch up with people and weekends if you're away invariably weekends is when you film stuff for the next week or you might be doing voiceovers for a film you know it it might be your baitball film and they might say, OK, Yola, we want you to do the voiceover for this. So you've got all of that as well. So you you don't have time to have a proper chinwag, a proper catch-up. And I'm not sure I've ever sat down with Chris and had a proper chinwag with him, to be honest with you. I don't think I have, you know, in 25-odd yeah. years. I don't think I have.
0: That's so peculiar, isn't it, when you yeah. think about that? It, it's weird, because by a weird quirk of fate, you nearly worked on that bait Ball film, with me a couple of years ago, because I've been, I don't know if you know the full story, but I've been pitching that to the watches for like four or five years. Every year it's like, come on, get get it on, get it on. And for whatever reason, um, either this, the fish didn't turn up, the weather wasn't right. I think one year you weren't available because um, they were going to have you come down, but then the week after they they buggered off. So uh, oh. that didn't happen that year. So I'm not going to blame you too much because we got there in the end anyway. uh um, oh, that's
1: such a shame, you know, yeah. Jack, because there are a few things – I've got, I've got a, a real sort of highlights from the watch. I've been involved now, oddly enough, for I think it's 11 years, 11 or 12 years now, yeah. from when I did my first thing. And the first thing was on Seawin in West Wales, believe it or not, with yeah. um, a fantastic old bailiff. He, he retired a couple of years after. He's still around now. Uh, a man called Emir Lewis. And Emir Emir knows those West Wales rivers, well, mid-West Wales rivers, better than anyone else I know. He's fabulous bloke. Um, but the, some of the highlights, seeing orcas for the first time ever in my life uh, off uh, Kate's Nest. Um, the other one was uh, Pike at Stony Cove.
0: I've see, I have seen that film. Yeah, that was good. Oh,
1: do you know what? I love doing that. It's when the temperature reaches nine degrees, I think it is, and the yeah, that, yeah. territories break down, and you know all this, but the big females go wandering, looking for a partner. You know, we had this massive female. She would have been about... I don't know 15 16 pounds with four or five males following it and and you know they got no fear of man then they yeah. come right past you and that was that was another real highlight for me as well so there's lots of stuff that i'd still like to do but you know i've been really lucky doing some really cool stuff for...
0: yeah they they're a good bunch of people it was um they didn't mention it in the program but i we shot that the day after my wedding so i got married oh. the day the day before <laughs> And I was so keen to get that on because I thought if we don't do it this year, then they're just going to ignore me. So I thought, Let's... so I got married the, the, the day before. Uh, Josh Jaggard, who you know, he was my best man. So we, oh, he's
1: a good lad, Josh. He yeah. is. He's
0: all right, isn't he? So we we uh, we had a drink or two anyway. So the next day, I mean, I I don't think they did any close ups, but I would have been looking a bit worse for wear. And so I think some of the camera work was a bit shaky from Josh. I thought, oh, God, we're never going to get away with this. But uh, <laughs> somehow they turned it into a quite decent film, I thought. But, uh, yeah, yeah it no, it
1: was good. I oh. have to ask, have you married a fish or, or, or not?
0: Mermaid. A mermaid I've married. Mermaid.
1: No. <laughs> right, yeah. best, best of both worlds, Jack. Yeah. Best of both
0: worlds. Yeah, women, women legs on the bottom and the fish on the top. I thought, I'll get my priorities straight. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... You're obviously known for kind of speaking out for a lot of things as well. I wondered, um, do you think it's important to to speak out? Because there's so many uh, injustices happening in in the natural world and it is easy to just kind of uh, keep to the status quo. And and there are some, without naming any names, there are some presenters who maybe have influence and they don't say as much, they just kind of keep the ball rolling. Whereas, and you mentioned Chris, who is completely opposite, who he he goes full in and, and campaigns... Uh, Do you think that's something if someone has got a sphere of influence that they should use that for for good, really?
1: Yeah, I feel very strongly about this. There's two things I feel strongly about. I think if you're going to be on telly presenting about wildlife, you need to know your stuff. And uh, not everybody does. You you know, I could name the really good naturalists on on two hands, really. Uh, But I do think, you know, you need to be a good naturalist, not a not somebody with a zoology degree. It does work if you're a decent scientist as well. Um, You you know, there are people on there who are really good sort of scientists and can explain the science well. I think that's important, too. But, But I think you've got to be a naturalist. And the second one is you I feel strongly that you've got to use your position to give a voice to. All the creatures out there, all the habitats that don't have a voice. They simply don't have a voice, you know, unless you speak up for them, um, then they're gonna disappear. And you know, the 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 best one by a long mile, without a shadow of a doubt, is Chris. You know, he, he's he's brilliant, and I know he's he's either loved or hated. I've got so much admiration for him. Um I, I campaign as much as I can in Wales here. Um, I campaign, I try and lobby welsh government i try and lobby natural resources wales uh, in nearly all cases unsuccessfully i have to be honest i I detest social media i really do (laughs) i think it gives a voice to the idiots out there but it does have its uses and campaigning is one of them um and i try and campaign for things that i feel strongly about you know you'll see that i'm absent from some campaigns where you might expect me to be there um it's because uh, because of my background very much a countryman if you like i don't feel strongly enough to be at the forefront of some of those campaigns um anywhere where there's habitat loss habitat destruction illegal bird of prey persecution pheasants is a big thing for me now you know i think i think it's madness to release 655 60 million yeah. pheasants into the uk countryside i genuinely think that is madness is, isn't that um, something
0: like our total bird mass i don't know the exact something like 40 percent uh, of something's all pheasants in the uk or something no, crazy like it's, that
1: it, it's a uh, bi- biomass pheasants make up over half of our bird biomass now Jesus so if Christ. you were to kill yeah. every single bird we have yeah and weigh them pheasants would be over half of that pile you know so and and it's madness it's a it's not a native bird it's a non-native bird and it shouldn't be here now i'm i'm not anti-shooting you know this is one of the things i get um a lot of shit for from from some environmentalists but but i I grew up in mid-wales uh between us some of the kids in the village i don't know where it came from we had a small gun of 410 which is like a little 12-bore i used to go out time we'd shoot rabbits mainly and what I shot, we ate. Yeah. And bear in mind, I grew up in the late '60s through the '70s when meat was a, quite an expensive commodity. So if I if I shot a rabbit or if I caught a decent-sized brown sort of trout, it was it was a meal for six of us. Um, so so th- that's why I'm not anti-shooting. I, I'm very anti all this jumping on horseback, red coats going after foxes. I detest all of that. I'm very anti-mass um, farming and releasing of pheasants. i very, very anti that. Anything illegal, illegal persecution, illegal snaring. You know, actually, snares I don't like, really don't like at all. So, um, yeah, so I, I I will campaign for stuff that I feel strongly about.
0: Yeah, no, and I think it's good to kind of stand up for, for what you believe in. And I also think you're right in saying you should know you know what you're saying practice what you preach sort of thing uh in terms of that I, I think it's good if you can get the balance having that knowledge but at the same time also being a, a half decent presenter and, and kind of uh condensing what you know and putting it into a kind of form where people can absorb that and and get a little bit more knowledge from it hopefully so do you know what what's weird jack what
1: i still find weird i've been doing this for 22 years i still hate watching myself. Okay. I really do. I, I will watch myself, but only when I'm by myself. You know, I've recorded every single winter watch and I've watched them back. And I've thought oh, I could have speeded that up a bit. I could have said that in a different way. You know, I'm I'm hyper critical of my own performance, really. And why people want to watch me on telly, I genuinely do not understand.
0: No, me neither, I mean no. because I wouldn't.
1: I, I, it's, a, it's true jack honestly <laughs> i wouldn't watch me i genuinely wouldn't watch me you know and i think bloody you've been at this 22 years you've got no better what are you doing you know and it's it's a funny thing but i, I know some people love watching themselves yeah you know, they, they love it i absolutely hate it absolutely well, hate if it. you've been doing I know it. what i do you know, I, I love what I do. I love what I do because, because I love wildlife. I'm so passionate about stuff and I'm so glad that we're now concentrating on UK wildlife, um, not just for the watches, but elsewhere as well, because I think it's so important for people out there to to learn about what's around them, to appreciate it. They'll then hopefully campaign to look after it. Um, but but watching myself on telly, it, oh, if, if you wanted to torture me to get information out of me, no need to get the SS in just play, you know, my bits on Winterwatch, my bits on BBC Wales from the year dot. And I would honestly, I'd tell you everything you wanted to know within four or five hours, I really would.
0: Well, if you've been doing it 20-odd years and, and they're still allowing you on the telly, Ollie, you must be doing something right. So I know, and, and it's probably good. It'd be a little bit more worrying, to be honest, if you were here saying, I fucking love watching myself. There's nothing better <laughs> than putting the telly on and seeing my face. So I think it's probably better that you're... Uh, that you're on that side of the fence if i'm honest with you um well look this is bringing me towards towards the end of it so I, I just wanted to say thanks for taking the time to come on and i'm sure at some point we will get a whiskey in the grand arms together
1: yeah hopefully jack and don't forget genuine now when you're over in wales again let me know and if i can i'd love to tag along and do a bit of snorkeling with a fish or diving with the fish whatever it is. It'd be one off my bucket list.
0: Yeah, no, we'll do that. Definitely. I'm well up for that. But yeah, take care, buddy. Cracking, Jack. Thank you very much. That was Yolo Williams. One of the obvious things with Yolo is how much of an all-rounder he is, whether it's birds, mammals, plants, whatever, there'll be something he's deeply interested in. I'll definitely take him up on a dip in the Welsh River for salmon. That sounds great to me. Next week, I have Fantresca Trotman on the show as we talk about the charity she set up, Love the Oceans, which works in Mozambique to make more sustainable marine fisheries allied with the local communities. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.